0: Welcome to the podcast, episode number 26. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and this is going to be part two of our continued discussion with Jay Pastorcelli, Zega Financial. Jay, how are you doing, doing today? Doing great,
1: Derek. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, you know, normally you do sort of a part one or part two, and we kept keep the tape rolling. We didn't do that because of time, but... We got a lot of good feedback on the first one, and we have plenty more to talk about. So this is going to be part two. If you didn't listen to part one, it's not like you have to listen to it, but things may make a little more sense. So we'll we'll link to that. And just you know, before we get into the discussion today, just to kind of summarize a little bit about what we were doing in part one, we started going through just the, the concept of real returns, meaning after inflation. And we also touched a little bit, and we'll expand on it today, about just how bonds on a real return basis are not what people maybe think they are, and we also got into the idea of you know how it is that that we believe there's a better opportunity to to get along the market and hedge and we touched a little bit on gold, so you know jay we'll we'll continue those things and um, you know one of the the things I think I got a question on from last week was we already covered. The real return aspect, meaning after inflation, you go back to like 1926 or 1962, and the 10 year bond total return is only like a real return of 2%, which by the way, isn't a lot of growth. Uh, But, Jay, one of the things that bonds, at least in my opinion, is, you know, yields are so low right now. uh, We use them more as a funding source, but I
1: gotta be honest, like they're not giving
0: people a lot of growth.
1: Yeah, no, you're, you're right, Derek. And especially, as you mentioned, after inflation, it looks even worse. You know, you are our resident bond expert. Uh, uh, that's, what, <laughs> that's one of those things that we love about you. And so, I, listen. I know you've done a little bit of complicated math. It's not too complicated, but I think we could simplify it to kind of explain why today, uh, with rates where they are, bonds are riskier than where, say, rates were, I don't know, 10 years ago. Could you kind of give us like a highlight here and then maybe we could do a little back and forth to get the concept out there for everyone?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Jay. And you know, one of the questions I normally get is hey, bonds didn't do that bad in the late 70s when rates were going up. And one of the things I remind people is that the coupon, meaning the interest that a bond pays, was much, much, much higher. I mean, we had rates 10 to 15 percent. But there's something called the sensitivity to interest rates. And to kind of simplify this, it's like, hey, if you buy a bond and interest rates went up relatively you know shortly or soon right what would i expect to make or lose on a bond and generally the concept is you know the idea that interest rates go up bond prices go down to give you an idea though let's say and the simple concept is this the longer the duration meaning something that's 1 year to maturity has much less sensitivity to interest rates something 30 years away like the 30 year bond is much more sensitive to interest rates. And that sensitivity is derived not only by the years, but also by the coupon payments, meaning how much is the bond paying each year in interest, either annually or semi-annually. So taking a look just at, let's say, a 30-year duration, if we looked at a bond that's 3%, which, by the way, isn't too far away from what treasuries are right now, uh, its modified duration, and when we say duration, just think about what would I make or lose if interest rates went up a full percentage point or 100 basis points? It's almost 20 years. Meaning, if interest rates went up 100 basis points, let's say you know tomorrow, uh, we would expect on that bond to lose almost 20. percent And although bonds can mature at par, it would take a lot of years sort of to to make that up. Uh, the One of the points too, Jay, I just wanted to make that let's say if a coupon was much, much higher, meaning the interest was not 3%, but it was 10%, that duration, that sensitivity is almost halved. And so I think one of the things that we're seeing is not only are yields low, and we talked about real yields versus nominal yields last week, but also people's risk of interest rate changes to the upside is much greater
1: than it's been when rates were much higher. All right, so hold on so I get the I'm getting the concept let me back into just a couple points here so you first mentioned duration which is the time until the bond matures right and uh, a lot of folks should realize that the reason why uh, the longer the duration right is, there's a couple reasons one you said you have more time in the market more risk but it's not only the amount of exposure to changing rates, but it's also the greater chance of default. Now, we know with treasuries, that's a low chance. But when you're when you are holding a bond for 20 years, there's a lot more of a chance that they don't pay you back the money you let them than, say, a bond that's only one or two years out. Right. So duration, longer duration means longer risk in bonds. Is that easy way to say it?
0: Yeah. And, and I think to, to give it a little analogy, if I, I can look at the 10-day forecast and I can tell when it's going to rain or not uh, with some accuracy, I don't have a 30-year forecast. So if you're holding a corporate bond, who knows in 20 years what that company's going to be like. But I, you're right. That's, that's pretty accurate.
1: Yep. Got it. And then the other thing you mentioned was uh, as rates are lower, when you have uh, this change, it's a greater percentage, right? So if you went from three to four meaning uh, uh, the interest rate on a bond went from 3% to 4% overnight, that would impact the value of your bond by 20% to the negative. Is that correct?
0: Yep, that's right. That's the good back of the envelope. And uh, and, and that's a risk. That's a risk that people have right now.
1: And so with 30, let's say you have a 30-year bond, a 30-year treasury that's paying about 3%. You know, you have to think about this. Is the bond gonna go from three to four percent at some point during this time that I'm holding it? And of course, the farther out in the cycle, the less risky. But if it happens in the near-term future, that impact to your value happens in the near future as well.
0: Yeah, and, and to to sort of hammer on your point. Hammer's not the right word, Jay. I'll use a different word. So just to sort of expand I on your Reinforce. Point. I yeah, reinforced. You know, yeah. we said it was almost 20, you would almost lose about 20% based upon the modified duration going from 3 to 4%. But let's say it happened in four years. Well, then the loss is roughly, you know, a little over 18%. So to your point, Jay, the closer to maturity, the less interest rate sensitivity risk that you have. But, I mean, if you have long-term bonds or even intermediate bonds... It's very levered to changes in interest rates because they're so low.
1: Correct, got it. And then if, what, if, what if I just held this bond that went from three to 4% and I just waited out the 30 years? At the end of it, would I get back? Let's say there was no default right now. Let's say that you know, miracu- miraculously is not the word. Most bonds don't default. But let's say the company made it to the maturity time and they paid me back. What uh, w- would I get my money back that I started with? or would that bond be worth less. Well,
0: it would be worth less for a while, but but you're right. As it it trends towards its maturity date, uh, assuming no defaults, you get your par value back. So let's say you have a bond that's $1000. Some big change in interest rate happens. It's now worth $800. As it gets towards maturity, it creeps back up towards and assuming no other changes in interest rates, it creeps back towards the problem, though, Jay, is let's say interest rates go from 3 to 4%, and you're receiving 3% nominal interest a year. Bonds are tied to inflation, and it's the, it goes back to the cost of money. And so the problem is, although you'll get your money back, your real return, let's say you're getting 3%, but now inflation is 3% or higher, your real return is actually negative. And so you're losing purchasing power, although eventually, as you say, you'll get your money back.
1: Yeah, well, you may get your dollar back, but your real return won't offset it. So you're kind of it's a double whammy, right? You're you're stuck now in this bond to wait for it to get back, you know, for the time duration to get shorter. But meanwhile, while you're waiting, you're getting paid less than what the theoretical interest rate uh, inflation rate might be. So your real return actually will turn out to still be a negative for you, right?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right, and I think the other aspect too is you know many people hold bonds and let's say in a, you know a mutual fund, and if they have a lot of redemptions, uh, and Jay, this is more of a trading aspect, you could see the fund having to liquidate bonds while they're down, and that causes some different complexities that maybe we'll save for another time, but um, that is another factor to think about.
1: Okay, well, good. I hope I hope we've kind of simplified this concept of. You know, duration risk and as, as interest rates move up, you're losing value, but you're kind of stuck in this thing for a little longer, and, but you're not getting paid what the market is paying. I, I do have one other question, Derek. We just talked about going from three to four. Uh, would it apply? Like, let's say we went from three to six over the next 10 years. Uh, it got to kind of a more normal rate that we've seen over the last couple of decades. Is that an even bigger impact or does it like, help me understand that one.
0: Yeah, I mean the the quick back of the napkin is it, it it gets complicated because if we have 30 years exactly to maturity it's one sensitivity if it happens in 4 years it's a, you know we don't necessarily know if it's all going to happen at once but yeah theoretically if you went from 3% to 6% you could be talking about 50% plus loss in in a bond you know it, it, the math gets a little crazy but really beyond that it's just if, if you're holding a bunch of bonds and You know, you could see the drawdown, the market values, but you're talking about years of negative real returns if rates do go up and you only have that. Um, And by the way, well, I, you know, they always say, don't bring something up if we haven't planned, but you know, people in, let's say annuities who don't have some sort of inflation protection, that's a whole other aspect. Maybe we'll just, we'll shelve that for another time,
1: but you're right, Jay. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you shouldn't bring that one up, but let let me, uh, let me, let me bring something up that we have talked about in the past, which is. Uh, bond funds. So we're talking about here if you actually owned the bond and you had the ability to hold that to maturity. And while that's not a great situation, you always have a chance to hold it all the way through. But what about a bond fund that is trading the bonds for you and has, let's say, a maturity or a duration target? Can we talk a little bit about those dynamics? Because most investors don't know how to go buy a bond. They know how to buy a bond fund or a bond ETF. So what is the impact on these low rates for those kinds of vehicles? Yeah, the way I look at this, and and the key thing you said is is some sort of
0: target duration. So let's say you have a fund. I'm going to make this up, right? You've got a made-up fund, and their target duration is 20% in corporate bonds. You see a spike in interest rates. Well, they're not going to hold those bonds necessarily to maturity. So they sort of book in the perpetual loss there. Uh, New bonds coming in would be higher. But the problem is, you know, they got to sell the, the bonds. They can't hold them to, to maturity.
1: Right, because they have a target, a duration target that doesn't allow them to hold bonds that, you know, start to get below their target, right? Most, most bond funds have a duration target of, let's just make one up, like, let's say it's five to seven years. As a bond starts to get to the five, four, three years to maturity, depending on the overall makeup of their portfolio, they've got to sell those at the market probably losing money because rates have gone up is that correct yeah no I think you're right Jay and, I think and when they and when they do that guess what they have less money to go buy a now more expensive bond that has say the nine eight seven year duration is that correct
0: yeah no that's correct and it goes back to the same problem of hey if you lose 50% you may it takes hundred percent to get to break even because you've got less assets it's the same thing here you're describing is as, as the the market values go down, It becomes more difficult to get it back, especially if you're you're just selling the things because of duration targets, as you say. But yeah, a lot of issues here with uh, with bonds and interest rates and sensitivities for sure. All right, good, Jay. We got the message out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So uh, I want to talk. I have a couple things on the list, Jay, and and it's really three things. Uh, One, this idea of the all weather portfolio. Uh, The second is we'll we'll go quickly on this risk parity. And then I want to bring it back to sort of the hedgers opportunity that we teased a little bit of last week. And I pasted that article. So on on the all weather, someone recently contacted me and said, Hey, I read this article online and it talked about this all weather portfolio. And the person who sent it to me said, they read that the all weather portfolio is constructed of 40% long-term bonds, 30% stocks, 15% intermediate bonds, 7.5% of gold and 7.5% of commodities. And the whole idea is that in different environments, let's say you have high inflation or higher interest rates uh commodities or gold will do better and then you know bonds are less volatile i think you know we don't have to go over what we just described in bonds but i think the challenge with this and you know people send me back tested results and back tested means look at everything that happened historically and we know that's no indication of future things but we've said before jay that bonds can't i, I don't want to say possibly but it's very unlikely that a bond over the next X number of years, given where interest rates are, are going to return what the historical returns were. And so this type of portfolio, to me, is highly leveraged interest rates. And we also talked last week about gold you know, being sideways and negative real return for many, many years, so the holding cost. So I think something like this, you hope it works. But I think it's still inferior to our idea of you know buying the market and hedging.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's think about why those portfolios carry bonds, right? And without throwing too much shade towards uh, those those managers, they're doing it to what offload risk, right? The theory is that hey, if the market get if the stock market gets volatile, you've got this bond that is going to go up in value because people will. Have a flight to safety, right? They'll want to move to something that's safer, and I think it's 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 pretty universally uh, understood and accepted that bonds carry less fluctuation in price than stocks. Stocks carry more volatility, and and the reason why they have all of those bonds in the portfolio is so that when things get nasty in the market, uh, that you have something that's offsetting that. But I think the point that you're bringing up here is that all of that historical research has been based on a very different bond environment, right? The bond trader uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, has had a very different environment than what we're looking at today. I mean, heck, I mean, we've had negative uh, yields recently, even in, over in Germany. I mean, we haven't even talked about what that means, Germany and Japan, um, when your bonds have a negative yield, meaning you're paying somebody for you to lend them money. It's, a, it's It seems so counterintuitive. So this is a unique environment, and 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 it's, you're unable to determine if those correlations of the past are going to be the correlations of the future. And by the way, the correlations of the past weren't even that great anyway. Am I kind of summing up your point pretty well on this one?
0: Yeah, no, I think those are all issues. And there's more issues too. I mean, I think when you look at this, you're right. I mean, this really relies on correlations. And one of the reasons why in the past, and I'll, I'll sort of generalize here, Think about what happens when you have some sort of economic meltdown or, or sell-off. generally, the Fed is going to lower interest rates if there's some and we know at some point there's going to be another recession we don't know when, but it's fairly certain it's going to happen. We don't know how deep and wide it will. but when you have interest rates that are what do we now about two forty on the effective funds rate I mean in theory they can try and push rates negative, but it's not like they have you know they can go from six percent to to 0.25 again. I mean the 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 bonds obviously have a flight to quality, but interest rates going down for the same reasons we just described would push bond prices up. And so yeah, I think it's a different environment and I think it's 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 not the best thing to just kind of look and and you know, you've got these periods where you also had some some things that really only happened uh, around the 70s. So I, again, Jay, I, I think it's just it's it's a lot more leverage, and the the interest rates are so low, and history says that over time investors will probably get it on an annualized basis the nominal yield that you're getting. So, yeah, I, I agree, Jay.
1: Yeah, I mean, so let's let's say I'm a conservative investor, Derek, right? And I go, well, listen, I understand that you know the stock market uh, can provide a lot more growth. Than the bond market, we all we all recognize this. Over time, the stock market uh, will provide a lot of opportunity for growth. It's up more often than it's down. All of those good things. But I'm a conservative investor, right? And so, if you're telling me I can't use bonds, help me out here, right? I don't want to miss out on the growth, but I also don't want to take those big, you know, minus twenty, minus thirty percent years in my portfolio because I'm conservative or moderately conservative. Where, where are you going to put me? What do you want to do with that?
0: Yeah, and I think. I think one more thing and then I'll transition right over to that is I just want to, I, I okay. want to, uh, no, no, that's, that's good, Jay. We, we're, we uh, you know, we plan a little bit, but not too much. Right. But the one other thing I, want, I wanted <laughs> to mention was the idea of a risk parity strategy. Okay. I'm not going to go into a risk parity strategy in deep. It would take me, you know, 20 minutes to really do it justice, but think about it this way. I look back and I said, Hey, over the last, you know, 2008, to 2018, there's some mix of the U.S. Aggregate Bond Index via the AGG, which is an ETF, and the SPY, which, of course, is the S&P 500. I said, okay, if you wanted a, we're going kind of efficient frontier, Markowitz, you know, efficient market portfolio, all that stuff, right? You say, okay, well, 20% stocks and 80% bonds would have given you a nominal return of somewhere, you know, north of 4.5%, 4.7%, with a standard deviation of about 3.81%. You say, okay, that's great, but on a real yield, a real basis is not that great. Risk parity, to kind of try and simplify, it says, hey, instead of you know, 20% stocks and 80% bonds is not enough of a return, what if we l- used leverage and doubled the allocation to the bonds, increased our, our return, but kept the standard deviation low? And the thing I want to just point out here is risk parity strategies work when the correlations remain more highly non-correlated, meaning more negative correlation. Stocks move one way, bond, bonds move the other. But now, if you're leveraging up a fixed income, a bond portion, it goes back to what we just talked about. We don't need to reiterate the sensitivity to interest rates. And so that type of strategy, I think it's interesting. Um, it gets a little more complex because what are you paying in margin interest or do you do it with futures or derivatives? Um, but I think it, it, just to kind of close the loop on that one, I think it's uh, it's problematic. Jay, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I apologize for jumping ahead <laughs> there. You're right. I thought we had already established a little bit about how the, the bonds may not be the right way to to create uh, uh, the conservative exposure. But now what you're saying is, hey, there are things called a risk parity portfolio where you're actually increasing your exposure to what appears to be the less risky asset in order to smooth out uh, returns even more during times of, uh, of a market correction, right? And so- Uh, In this example that you're giving, uh, this type of a portfolio, make sure I'm hearing it right, uh, ends up carrying a greater percentage of bonds than just say a traditional 60-40 allocation. It may be uh, the flip-flop that and then you double your bond allocation uh, uh, because bonds have uh, a lot of lending power and all of those kinds of reasons. And because of that, you then end up having a bigger piece of your pie allocated to bonds.
0: Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and uh, just as a, as a last thought, if we have a sell-off in bonds due to a rise in rates that also triggers a sell-off in equities, I mean, this just gets, uh, let's just say it gets complicated. Okay, back to the...
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, yeah, if, if rates rise, right? If, I mean, we were at the point for a while there where the market was very fearful of rising rates. And so as rates were going up, meaning your bonds were going down, the market was also going down. Right. So you've got to got this double whammy. It's not like that uh, that relationship hasn't existed before. Right. I mean, we have seen that in the past many, many times where, uh, you know, the market is so focused on the Fed and a fear of the Fed raising rates too quickly that as rates go up, the market is selling off. Right. So your bonds are losing value and your stock is losing value. And so that just gets compounded.
0: All right, so as we transition to our, uh, our I'll, I'll assume people heard the transition, the little the little nice little throw there. But uh, one other thing too is this also reminds me of the whole uh, and I don't want to get into it uh, because of time, but the target date funds, you know, those disappointed people in 2008 yet somebody two years from retirement, and some of those had drawdowns. And this all ties back around now to, you know the idea that if you need growth, and if we've identified some of the issues in bonds, we don't use bonds the way that the 60-40 portfolio, the risk parity, the all-weather uses it. We use it as a funding source to help reduce the cost of hedging. We get long the market using options, and then we have a defined floor. And if you take away some of the big equity risk, that becomes very interesting. And why not use the asset class that historically has showed the most growth and opportunity, but just hedge it? So Jay, talk a little bit about you know, uh, that. And then I also want you to get into the hedgers opportunity because I think that's a really, really important point. So the floor is
1: yours. All right. Thank you. So yeah, the way that we end up dealing with this, uh, you know, conservative investor, but needs growth to at the very least outpace inflation, and maybe they haven't hit the retirement targets or, you know, they they know they've got years of investing ahead of them. Um, You're right. Being exposed to the stock market is important. We've just discussed that being exposed to the bond market isn't nearly as safe as History has taught us. Uh, and so, you know, what we think about when it comes to investing, why not be exposed to the asset class like stocks that has a history of, of positive growth, a very good history of positive growth, um, but take out those really big drawdown years? We all know risk and return are linked. We know that if you want more return, you have to take more risks. So why not manage that risk directly? And that's what we talk about when we talk about a hedged equity portfolio, meaning a protected stock portfolio. Um, You know, we prefer that because what we have found that being too conservative out of the fear of loss can actually be just as detrimental to reaching your return goals as experiencing a major market sell off. Of course, it won't be as violent, but over time, you will miss your targets if you end up being too conservative. There are times to really lock it down and be very conservative, and that's fine. And bonds can be a vehicle for that. If you're able to manage through this duration and interest rate risk, which is, is possible. But for long term growth needs, um, we think that it ends up being uh, 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 easier to meet those needs when you're invested in the asset class like stocks that has a tendency to outpace, but do it in a protected way. Um, you mentioned uh, any any comments on that, Derek, before I wrote to rotate to the uh, to the hedger's opportunity, which which is kind of a new, a different topic?
0: Yeah, no, I think let's let's rotate because we've teased it both weeks and I think it's really important. Well,
1: so finally it's here <laughs> <Yes>. after two weeks <laughs> of teasing it. Um, so one of the, the interesting things about a hedged equity portfolio is that there's this unique opportunity presented to you when the market really does have a large sell-off. So we call this the hedger's opportunity and it is the opportunity of reinvesting avoided losses or profits from your hedges at a market that's lower. So let's say, for example, you have a portfolio, you have $100, and your hedging level is 10 10%. So now you've lost, you know, now you're at 90, 90 cents. You started with 100, you're at you're 100 cents, you're at 90 cents, the market's lost 10%. Well, if the market keeps going down, 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 you're able to then reinvest with that 90 cents at a discounted market, let's say the market had dropped 25%. And if you had held it the whole time, you'd only have 75 cents versus the dollar that you started with. Well, you could reinvest that 15 cents that you avoided and lost from being hedged into the market, but buying it at a discount at 75 cents. It's almost like being able to buy the market cheaper than uh, with money that hadn't depreciated alongside of it. And this hedger's opportunity has this perverse incentive where if you're hedged, you want the market to sell off. You want as big of a sell-off to happen as you can because it allows you to reinvest at a lower level, meaning you're just buying at a discount. You're buying the market cheaper. You're coming in at a level that, uh, where your money can carry you a lot, more far, a lot farther. And what ends up happening is you have more shares for a rebound on the way up than you would have had on the way down. And so let's say by the time the market gets back to where it was before the whole nonsense occurred, you end up having more shares and more growth than you did uh, uh, than everybody else that just stayed long the market the whole time. And so this concept of the hedger's opportunity is weird. It's a little unique. But if you think about it, you get to buy the market cheaper on dollars that hadn't lose their value.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think that's a great description, Jay. And I know... uh uh we're a little pressed on time because you've got to run and do a bunch of trading some important stuff right rebalance we got some (laughs) trades to do today that's true but i i think just to kind of close the loop here i think it is a unique opportunity and one of the things from an emotional level for investors i think this provides is it it you know takes away so much of this onus of trying to time the market and time your entries and so you know you think about you you hopefully someone in the strategy sleeps a little better at night but also just the angst about? Should I put money in? If I have a lump sum, is now the time to invest it? I think this sort of solves for some of those issues.
1: You know, Derek, we could talk about this topic for a long, long time. And and. Uh, how hedging takes out market timing, how, you know, it allows you to invest regularly while the market's pushing to new highs and not worry too much about
0: sellback. I, I think I hear a part three, Jay. Part I, think three. I, <laughs> I think I hear a part three, or at least we'll have you back on. Look, I, I know you got to run and uh, hopefully this this tied the knot on uh, or tied the loop, whatever the heck that, that saying is on, on part one and part two.
1: We close the loop. I think we close the loop on bond.
0: Oh, yeah. Close. There you go. <laughs> okay. So with that, we'll close this one down. Folks, uh, you know, if you like what you hear, please share it with somebody. Don't necessarily waste time rating and reviewing. Share it with somebody. Pass it along to someone if you think this is valuable. And uh, Jay, we'll have you back on soon. Thanks, Jay. Take care.